Is there significance in it being um, a criminal code rather than a civil code? Yeah, absolutely. This is absolutely crucial to it. It's something that's often not understood is that a lot of environmental legislation that we have is very limited in its remit. Uh, often it's down to the community that's adversely impacted to take a civil action. So that means it's a private action brought by those individuals. And often individuals who are adversely harmed have either the legal nor the financial wherewithal to do that. So, And it can take many years going through civil courts. And often all you can get is a payout and it's too little too late. Whereas criminal law becomes incumbent upon the state to, to take the action. And that's very important here. Just as, you know, if you have a theft happening... Um, the, the state takes action on your behalf. Same thing for ecocide. And the International Criminal Court in The Hague only steps in where a nation state is either unwilling or unable to take action. So what it does is it creates an accountability mechanism within the, the national governance system and a, a, an international accountability at the of the national system as well. So there's a kind of check and balance here that's absolutely crucial. But also, here's the other thing. With criminal law, I, it is not a defence to argue uh, by a company that they're committing ecocide because it will create jobs or will give good profits. You cannot argue that as a defence in criminal law. Unlike civil law, where actually that can be part of your, your mitigation and you end up paying a fine but business continues as usual. If you're found guilty of a crime, I, then your business cannot continue doing that. So this is about either change your ways or, or close down and it gives the state the power to close down companies that refuse to amend uh, dangerous industrial activity. So if, for example, we found uh, a coterie of... Um fossil fuel companies planning to burn, say, six times the amount of fossil fuel as we could reasonably expect to do and still remain under the two-degree limit, um, they might well be charged with criminal conspiracy. Well, actually, it's, it's interesting because you're just looking, it's not even conspiracy. Uh, you'd be charging there with uh, a crime of ecocide. Right. And how it works out is crime attaches itself to individuals. So it's, it's, it's not the corporation that's, that's charged, right. it's the person. So you're looking the at CEOs, the CEO and the, the directors. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And this is the thing, this is really about closing the door to the dangerous industrial activity that's really putting humanity at risk of injury or harm here. So this is a humanitarian issue as well as a, a, a right to nature aspect as well. It's a right to life, human right to life as, as well as Earth's right to life. But it's also it's about future generations. It's about what we do here and now, especially within the corporate context, that can have significant adverse consequences for future generations. So it's about closing the door to that uh, very quickly. And giving, I mean, I, I recommend, I was invited by a group of nations uh, two years ago to submit a concept paper on just how quickly could we put this in place. And we can have this table next year, and I recommend that we have a five-year amnesty period where we help those companies, the, the problem to become the solution. It doesn't actually help us to close down a huge amount of companies overnight. That would be hugely economically damaging I, and, and really not supportive of how we want to build resilience. But it, it would mean that they would find it very hard to, f to find uh, financial backing. 
yeah, well, for activities that might well be seen as dangerous. Exactly right, because this is all about the flow of money. And this is the interesting thing. As soon as the investment community recognise that it's a matter of when, not if, this law is put in place, you no longer want to finance projects that are going to become illegal activity within five or so years. So you no longer want to fund activity that become illegal five or so years. Absolutely right. And this is the beauty of it, is that in fact what you find is very quickly, it's the shift of investment. Uh, the flow of money moves into the innovation in another direction very fast because what you're doing is you're creating a level playing field for business to move forward. And those who are really entrepreneurial and really understand that actually this is the future where it's going, that's where money will flow. And suddenly what you're dealing with is a different kind of risk assessment. You're actually dealing with a consequence assessment. If we invest in this over here and it's going to be deemed criminal industrial, dangerous industrial activity and become a crime, then that is not a wise investment. That's very high risk. And what we'll find is then governments will be by law uh, in a position to actually have to finance and support through subsidies the innovation in the other direction. So all in all, this is a really a law that can and will trigger the green economy in a very big way. It's about creating resilient economies, it's about creating jobs, it's about sending out strong investment signals and long-term investment signals that are global, that can't be rolled back as a result of national legislation overnight. And that's very important because this is really about how we chart our ship, so to say, in a very different direction, literally turn it 180 degrees and really scale up the innovation in the other direction and give support for that to happen and allow those companies that are the problem to become the solution. What moved you to get involved with this whole idea? <laughs> well, you know, um, I think it comes from a place of deep care, deep, deep care for people and planets and a recognition that what we've got here does not work. I was representing big transnational corporations in court, people that I got on really well with, and I couldn't quite square it in my head. How is it that these people that I get on with think it's completely fine to make massive profit out of something that's really destructive? And that is a normative. That is, We've made it legal to do that. It is the law for a CEO and his or her directors to put the interests of the shareholders first, which means to make money. In fact, so they're required to do so. Absolutely, by law. So law has actually created the problem. And it occurred to me, coming through the lens of looking at corporate law and recognising that existing environmental law doesn't work, it's just catch me if you can fines and it's civil litigation, that really it's about drawing a line in the sand and saying, enough, no more, we cannot go there. It is just too dangerous uh, and really create the enabling conditions for the innovation in the other direction to happen. So I'm not anti-corporations, I'm, I'm very pro it. What, what I take issue is is, is is profit and greed that arises out of the dangerous industrial activity. Mm. Now, are there any countries that already have such laws on the books and are using them to protect the environment? For me, this is a gap. Even the countries that have law of ecocide in place, I, I, what I'm seeing is that because they're having to play by global rules, it's not helping. And this is why this isn't a law to just put in incrementally, country by country, because really, in truth, what will happen is, for instance, if we put it in place in Britain, we just have our top 100 companies deregister overnight and, and relist in another country where business can continue as usual. So until we make this international and a level playing field, we're on a hiding to nothing, really. 
and inevitably you can get a new government in that can overturn national legislation. So this is really about putting in place what really is a supranational law at the very top end. It's like an umbrella piece of legislation within which absolutely everything must adhere to. Just as we have with genocide, for instance, uh, you can't put in place national legislation to override that. Now, yes, we do have genocide still playing out in a limited context in various places, but it's an exception, not a normative. Pre-1948, we had an awful lot more genocide going on, and believe it or not, countries had laws in place to allow that to be lawful to do that. Well, it is to us now, but back then it wasn't. That's the amazing thing. So this is the shift of normatives of how we look at the world and what we deem acceptable and not acceptable. So what sort of reaction have you gotten from the the legal profession about this uh, proposal? Well, actually, it's really fantastic. The the international legal community take this as a given, um, that this is the next big step that we need to take in international legal law. So this is recognised as an inevitability, a matter of when, not if. Uh, and that, that's, that's greatly supportive. We now have a new working group on crimes against the environment set up as of last year in uh, the United Nations. And we now have various organisations who are tasked specifically to look at crimes against the environment who are engaging with all of this in a very big way. So this is very exciting. Um, you know, it, it really is an idea whose time has come. If people want to find out more about the idea and the mechanics of it, you have a, a website or...? A yes, absolutely. I go to eradicatingecocide.com. Or a, just great, a great name. <laughs> well, you know, here's my wish. By 2020, that we have ended the era of ecocide. And I have laid out the legal pathway to do that. It, it can be done. Of that, I have no doubt. Every country in the world can pass emergency legislation overnight. It's just a question of whether or not we deem it an emergency now. And just remember, an emergency is just a state of emergence for something better to be put in place. And this is the law to do that.